Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware plus more. And, of course, also by Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application learning product on the market. If you enjoy the show each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. Beginning November 30th, 2020, so this November, the Microsoft Teams web app will no longer support Internet Explorer 11. And also beginning August 17th, 2021, the remaining Microsoft 365 apps and services will no longer support IE 11. Microsoft state that new Microsoft 365 features will not be available or certain features may cease to work when accessing the app in IE 11. In the publication about the end of support for these web apps, Microsoft recommends using the new Edge with Internet Explorer mode to support your apps that still require IE 11 and state that they are not ending support for IE at this time, but as IE 11 does not support new web standards, such sites and services in the future will be moving away from supporting it. I haven't tried Internet Explorer mode much in Edge yet, but I'm assuming it's going to have a relatively high success rate, probably more so than the Enterprise mode did in the past, but we'll have to wait and see. I'm guessing if it actually uses the locally installed Internet Explorer 11 components on the operating system, it should work. I just haven't tried it. They do state that if you do have compatibility issues, that mean you need to keep supporting your apps in the full Internet Explorer 11 mode and you can't get by with the Internet Explorer 11 mode, you need the full IE 11. In that case, they have engineers as part of their AppAssure program who would like to help you resolve that. After March 9th, 2021, the Microsoft Edge Legacy Desktop app, so the original Edge, the bad one, will not receive new security updates. I'd like to thank Jeremy Moskowitz for pointing this out to me. I was reading some of the other outlets' news stories about this rather than the Microsoft Post originally, and they were pretty misleading, suggesting that IE11 was going the way of the Dodo, which it is not. This is just support of 365 apps in Internet Explorer 11. IE11 is here to stay with no end of support announced. The Verge reported that Google had some service disruption issues earlier this week with reported problems including Gmail sending issues, meet recording issues, creating files issues in Drive, CSV user upload issues in the admin console, posting message issues in Google Chat, sites adding new page issues, keep issues, and also voicemail issues. It appears the first status of an issue was around 1.30 a.m. Eastern and was marked as fully resolved around 7.30 a.m., so a pretty lengthy disruption, about six hours. This may be a false perception on my part, but it seems to me like Google services are typically pretty reliable with major service disruptions like this that are across all platforms, very few and far between. 
So I guess even the ones that get it very right in terms of uptime, they still have issues. Interestingly, ZDNet reported that on Wednesday, Google patched a major security bug impacting the Gmail and G Suite email servers. The bug could have allowed a threat actor to send spoofed emails mimicking any Gmail or G Suite customer and even bypassing security features like sender policy framework and domain-based message authentication reporting and conformance. It stated that Google delayed patching until September despite the fact that put them past the disclosure deadline having been informed of it a few months ago. Google engineers then changed their mind this week after security researcher Allison Hussein, who discovered the bug, published details about the bug on her blog, including a proof-of-concept exploit code. Seven hours after the blog post went live, Google told Hussein they deployed mitigations to block any attacks leveraging the reported issue, while they wait for final patches to deploy in September. So I guess a workaround or mitigation put in place while the long-term fix is going to be put in place in September. And if you're keeping tabs, my previous story about an outage, don't know if it's related. It's not reported that it's related and it looks like the change or the mitigation was put in place over 24 hours before the disruption. So maybe they'll clarify and it will be related, but for now I'm assuming it was not. China has blocked Notepad++ after the publishers released their Stand with Hong Kong and Free Uyghur editions, which were named in this way to show the plight of the Hong Kong and Uyghur people. So right now, if you try to get to the Notepad++ homepage in a browser in China, it still works, but if you try to go to the download page, it's blocked. Don Ho, who's the creator of Notepad++, if you use Notepad++, you'll probably be familiar with his name. He told bleepingcomputer.com that he was never contacted by the Chinese government, but is not surprised by the ban. Quote, I am not surprised about their reaction, but since the free speech is basic right of everyone, I won't keep silent. End quote. Netflix shared a really interesting article about a monitoring platform they created for themselves called Telltale, which helps them ensure good health of their services, and most importantly, to help them figure out where issues lie when there is a problem. They go after the principles of a good monitoring platform, and it's interesting to see how they do it versus how maybe we do it in enterprise IT. And honestly, we're not miles apart. If you've looked at various different products on the market, say like those from Goliath Technologies, maybe from Liquidware, Control Up. A lot of the same principles apply into how they have developed theirs. Theirs is just much more tunnel visioned onto their services exactly. But still, it's interesting to see how they're doing things since they've got such a large, complex network of microservices. Carnival Corporation, the world's largest cruise ships company, disclosed a ransomware attack that hit them on August 15th. They didn't provide a lot of details, but they did at least confirm that they expect that the attackers gained access to some guest and employees' personal data. Carnival said the attackers, quote, accessed and encrypted a portion of one brand's information technology systems, end quote, and that intruders also downloaded files from the company's network. 
The cruise line operator said it already started an investigation into the breach, notified law enforcement, and engaged with legal counsel and incident response professionals. So maybe more details will be disclosed at a later date. Bleepingcomputer.com also reported on yet another major ransomware attack. This time, the victim is Brown Foreman, one of the largest U.S. companies in the spirits and wine business. They have major brands like Collingwood and Jack Daniels. It's said that one terabyte of data was stolen and is reportedly available to the highest bidder. The data includes confidential info like that about employees, company agreements, contracts, financial statements, and internal correspondence. In a post on their leak site, Revel, who were the attackers, published multiple screenshots with directory trees, files with names that appear to support their claims, and internal conversations between some employees. The pictures show documents dating as far back as 2009. Brown Foreman stated, quote, Brown Foreman was the victim of a cybersecurity attack. Our quick actions upon discovering the attack prevented our systems from being encrypted. Protecting the privacy and security of personal information is extremely important to us. The company deeply regrets any inconvenience or concern this may cause. Keeping information secure is a priority for Brown Foreman. We know this news comes at an already challenging time and may be disconcerting given the uncertainty of the situation. End quote. So I guess it's at least good news for their operations that an encryption attempt was not successful, but it still sucks that the data was breached. In some good news, right now you're able to enable the native desktop experience for your Amazon AppStream version 2 fleets. Previously, AppStream 2 streaming sessions only showed the windows of the applications that were launched. With this launch, you can enable desktop view on your fleet, which provides the same desktop experience your users are used to with the existing non-persistent capabilities that AppStream version 2 provides. You can enable the desktop view when you create a new fleet or update a stopped fleet. And if you're an AWS customer and you're interested in doing that, you can enable the desktop view on your fleet resources at no additional charge in all AWS regions where AppStream 2 is offered. And now in a quick hit story, Windows 10 version 20H2, which I believe is the first with the new versioning that I mentioned on a previous episode of the podcast. This is going to be version 20H2. It is available now in its commercial pre-release state for all of those who like to get ahead of the pack for their enterprise testing. In a pretty cool, interesting story that I saw in a tweet by Christian Brinkhoff, so thank you, Christian. Some of the first test results from SpaceX's Starlink satellite internet were shared online, showing latency varying between 31 milliseconds and 94 milliseconds, and speeds going up to 60 megabits per second. This could have really interesting implications for people who live in rural areas without access to decent broadband. I mean, yeah, the latency compared to maybe what we get with fiber broadband is pretty poor, at 60 megabits per second, top speed is not that great if you got one gigabit per second. But if you're limited to one or two megabits per second and high latency, this would be a godsend. Bear Larson shared a screenshot on Twitter this week showing that you can search for the BitLocker key ID without searching for the device first within Azure now. 
Interesting to see this evolution for MBAM. It seemed to have a really uncertain future there for a while. I was certain it was going to be too important for them to just dump it as a product completely when MDOP was going away, but I wasn't sure in what form it would remain, so this is great to see. Something I must have missed before, but I discovered this week, Flexera have brought Linux Docker container support into their FlexNet Manager suite from version 2020R1 and forward. Some of the potential capabilities under consideration for the product include support for Windows Docker containers in future, gathering inventory from container management infrastructure such as Kubernetes, static analysis of container images without the need to run images, consider software running within containers when calculating license consumption. So it's pretty interesting because one of the challenges with containers is that it's kind of a mystery once you've got the containers out there. Like unless you're keeping track of them with your own spreadsheets or something like that, or maybe a really good product like New Vector. There's not that many products out there for tracking your containers, but FlexNet Manager would be a good spot to be able to keep inventory on a lot of your software products now, plus these containers. So that's pretty interesting. And another month, another patch Tuesday. Microsoft have patched two zero-day vulnerabilities in Windows that were being exploited by Korean hackers, according to Moscow-based cybersecurity firm Kaspersky. Tomsguide.com reports that the first zero-day vulnerability assigned the catalog number CVE-2020-0986 could have given extra powers to an attacker who had already logged into a Windows system. Using those elevated privileges, the attacker could have installed, deleted, or altered existing software or system settings. Microsoft labeled this as an important rated vulnerability, and the second is CVE-2020-1380, which would let an attacker controlling a malicious website gain user privileges on a system that opened a page on the website in Internet Explorer. With the second zero day, the attacker's privileges would match only those that the user whose browser opened the page was running in. So if the user was running as a limited user without admin privileges, the attacker wouldn't be able to do much, but if they're in there as an admin, uh -uh. In total this month, Microsoft released security patches for 120 different flaws, including for products such as Windows, Edge, Microsoft Scripting Engine, the .NET Framework, SQL Server, Dynamics, Office, and many other products. Out of these, 17 were categorized as critical. So as I say each month, patch, patch, patch. This week, Citrix posted about Citrix virtual apps and desktops service support for VMware Cloud on AWS. Interestingly, in conjunction with Citrix provisioning, 1912 LTSR are newer. So this is pretty interesting. I talked about on the podcast before how VMware Cloud on AWS supports Citrix PVS, which obviously in Citrix Cloud, you're limited to MCS, at least for now, and possibly for the future. But with VMware, because they've done a pretty good job of basically allowing you to lift what you do today on-premises into a cloud-hosted VMware solution, since you know Pixie works in your on-premises data center and BDM works, presumably they're making that work on VMware Cloud and AWS too, which is pretty cool, and it's always good to have options. This week, Citrix also announced a preview of Adapter HDX, 
which allows you to configure your Citrix cloud to no longer require to route through an on-prem cloud connector and instead go directly from the VDA to the gateway service via the Rendezvous protocol. If you'd like to try this, there are a few prerequisites you need to have in place first, so you'll want to check out the Citrix article, which I will share on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 138. Microsoft released the WVD Quick Start Solution, which they say simplifies and automates the WVD deployment process, leveraging the power of Azure DevOps. It can apparently deploy a full WVD environment for you within the click of a button. They do say that Quick Start requires you to have some prerequisites in place, like an Azure subscription, admin privileges, a virtual network, Azure AD, native or AD or AADDS, and some user input required. From that point, they say we'll, in a fully automated way, using Azure DevOps, deploy a functional WVD environment with two virtual machines running Windows 10 Enterprise Multi-Session, build 2004 with Office 365 and Microsoft Teams installed. Additionally, the virtual machines will be configured with FSLogix for user profile management. And upon completion, a test user can log into the environment and experience the best of what WVD has to offer. Doesn't that sound awesome? It's interesting that the virtual network has to be in place there. That's something I know with Nerdio and CloudJumper, it's one of the prerequisites too. When you're going through the steps, it's going to prompt you to also input a virtual network, but you're able to at least create the virtual network at that point in the UI. So I'm going to have to check out this WVD quick start to see, is it a point of they'll check to see that you got that in place and tell you, nope, you can't start at all, go do this. Or is it at least going to be within the UI and prompt you and allow you to do it from there? That would be okay. If you have to have the prereqs in place, to me, that seems a little bit clunky. They could probably make it a little bit better. But hey, I'll check it out and see what it's like. And the final news story, sticking with WVD, the new WVD client, version 10.2.1519, now supports WVD connections and has a refreshed user interface for improved user experience. It looks like it's a little more polished looking compared to what I've used in the past, so should be a little bit of a step up. And now, a weekly webinar. I saw a registration link being shared for the Alchemy Solution Summit, which is titled Delivering the Modern Workspace. It's going to be held on Thursday, August 27th at 4 p.m. British Summertime. So I believe that's a five-hour difference with the East Coast. So that's going to be like 11 a.m. East Coast time for those in the States. It looks like they got a pretty all-star lineup, including some awesome techies like Jason Samuel and Jarian Gibson that a lot of us would know in the community, with Jarian actually representing Nutanix, and also some other representation from those working for Citrix, iGel, and Avanti too. But what caught my attention the most was that I saw that Arthur Hotomi, the CEO of Numescent, will be taking part for a 30-minute session. So I had the pleasure of interviewing Arthur on the Frontline Chatter podcast with Jarian last year, and I've been a longtime fan of Numescent cloud paging, so I strongly suggest that you check this out and learn about cloud paging for yourself. And I'll share the registration link with this episode again, which is episode 138. You'll find it on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links and right at the top of the page. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. 
MITRE.org shared their list of the 25 most dangerous software weaknesses from over the previous two calendar years. These weaknesses are dangerous because they are often easy to find, exploit, and can allow adversaries to completely take over a system, steal data, or prevent an application from working. The CWE Top 25 is a valuable community resource that can help developers, testers, and users, as well as project managers, security researchers, and educators provide insight into the most severe and current security weaknesses. So if you have an interest in the security space and just ensuring that you're protected against what MITRE, who managed the CWE lists, deemed to be the most dangerous, you'll want to check this out for yourself. Andreas Nick, again sharing some really great one-liners for PowerShell, shared how you can start a PowerShell within the MSIX bubble. So if you're familiar with AppV, you would want to do that with like a command window or PowerShell in order to be able to get in to the virtual bubble and troubleshoot issues with the application. So with this one, you can do that for MSIX. He also shared a really nice one-liner to show non-erasable modern applications in Windows 10. A heads up that Aaron Parker just updated his excellent practical guide to FSLogix containers. If you've not checked out this post before, you really should now that we all pretty much own FSLogix since Microsoft acquired it and have made it pretty much widely available to all enterprise customers. Julian Maureen tweeted a tip this week to make sure to enable the service WEM Logon SVC when working with Citrix WEM and external tasks, which should be processed on the logoff of the user session. And that is because with earlier WEM agent versions, you had to disable the service because it created a logon delay of five to 10 seconds. So you wanna make sure you go back and ensure that service is enabled now. There was a really cool blog post on securecloud.blog this week that got into using alternatives to the usual AD break glass admin account. That break glass account can leave you a little vulnerable, so being able to provide extra security with such an account should be of interest to all, and this post covers just that. Thanks to Thomas Poppelgaard for this next one. There is a list on NVIDIA's site showing enabled applications that use NVIDIA RTX. If you ever wondered what apps can harness its mighty power, now you know. I was interested in this a couple of years ago, when my employer was considering investing in GPUs, I was like, well, what applications that we own will actually benefit from this other than just offsetting some of the processing just in general? So this could be a really good place for you to look if you're considering NVIDIA RTX. And finally, I feel like this is going to be a long episode by the time I edit it, but finally, a little shameless self-promotion if you don't mind. This week I posted a blog on Evergreen strategy for end user computing where I go into not just the application side of the house, which is where my expertise would be, even though I hate calling myself an expert, but that's where most of my knowledge and experience would be, is the application side. I get into Evergreen applications, but I also get into just Evergreen infrastructure and even down to the user level of that Evergreen ethos for helping manage your users and doing it in the best way possible. I'm actually going to have a few new blog posts coming up in the next few weeks. So sorry, but I might be sharing them on the podcast too. And also I'll share a link hopefully next week to the upcoming new season of the fantasy premier league that I do every year. 
So if you're interested in playing in that, and I might do an NFL one this year as well. I have a friend who's asked. So keep tuning in, and I'll hopefully share links for registration and sign up for that too. As with every week, thank you all so much for listening.